Isaiah 29, verse 13. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. David has the crown in his hands, and one would think that Israel would be just totally thrilled to finally have him as king. Judah has said, yes, we want you as our king. But where Israel was concerned, it was not a peaceful transition of power. 2 Samuel 2, verses 8 through 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, son Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This really was not Abner's place to be able to do this. But, you know, I think I can understand why he so disregarded letting David become king over everybody. We need to remember what David said to Abner when David and that, that guy that was with him went into Saul's camp when he was sleeping. They took that water jug and they took the spear and then they retreated across the valley and called out. You remember what was said in 1 Samuel 26, verses 15 and 16? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was in his head? Abner was afraid of David. He was afraid of David, especially since Abner is alive and King Saul's not. He may have had a guilty conscience right here, and he may have figured that David's threat or warning was still applicable. Abner is a strong general, and he's got a lot of pull and still a lot of love, and he's respected by everybody. He had a good life under Saul. He was the head of all the army. He was like, he was like Alexander the Great for Saul. So when Saul now dead... Why not take one of Saul's sons and make him king over Israel and still serve him? Possibly setting up a puppet government to where he can manipulate the king. I don't know. It's possible. But we do know that it was not long before a civil war broke out between Judah and Israel. And it was really interesting when, we, when you look at it because Abner's in charge of Israel's army. And he went and met with Joab and his two brothers who were in charge of Judah's army under King David. And they met together. And they had a contest of sorts, a crazy contest. And they may have had this deal that was in there that said, if we win this contest, we will surrender to you and vice versa. I'm not sure. It's possible. But the contest went like this. I'm going to send some of my men up to fight you send some of yours to seek the same number to fight, and the winner, we'll just see what happens. Well, they did that. 
And the first thing that the first groups did was, well, they grabbed each other by their hair, pulled them back and stabbed each other to the side, and they all died. And it didn't say that they quit there. It seemed like this kept going on for a while. But we find out, according to 2 Samuel 2.17, that day the battle was very severe. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So therefore, Joab and his group started winning. And this really had to make uh, Abner start to really think. And I'm pretty sure that after this heavy price, he and what he had left took off running. Typical behavior. If you're getting, if you're getting your bucket kicked, you run away. Joab and David's men chased him, him and his two brothers. But he had a brother that was really fast. Says he ran like a deer. And he was chasing Abner down. And Abner turned around and said, whoa, stop right there. Asahel, quit chasing me because if you don't, you're going to die. Asahel didn't stop. He continued. And so what did Abner do? He took the butt of his spear and thrust it through his gut. Not the point, the dull butt. Thrust it through his gut and he died. Joab and the other brother and the rest of the army continued to chase him. They saw the brother dead. And Abner and his group of men got on top of a hill and they formed a tight circle. They were in a position of great defense. I mean, you don't want to have to fight going uphill. You're going to lose 90% of the time, especially when you have the lower ground. Abner called out to him and said, Hey, why don't you stop and why don't you just go away, go beyond your own way, because why should these men have to fight each other as brothers and die? Remember, they're all Israelites. No matter what you do, they're all under the kingdom of God. Why should the brothers fight and die? Well, in the end, 2 Samuel 2, verses 30 and 31 tells us, Then Joab returned from following Abner, when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. That's saying an awful lot right there alone. Overall, this turned out to be a really lengthy civil war. Over the period of time, everybody could see that David and his men were getting stronger. Asabah and his men were getting weaker. Everybody except one man, and that was Abner. And because of this strength, it was really frightening to the guy he appointed king. And what he ended up doing was accusing Abner of sleeping with one of King Saul's concubines. Well, you can just imagine this did not set well with him. He was very upset, and Abner told him just how nice he had been to him. 2 Samuel 3, verses 8 through 10. Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if, his, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. Abner did just that. He sent messengers to David and said, David, 
I want to do a deal with you. I want to make a covenant. I'm going to bring all the heads of Israel to you to make a covenant to where you're king over everybody. And David said, "Ah, sounds like a plan to me. One condition. I want my original wife, Michael, back. She was mine. I want her. Well, Abner said, okay, I can do that. So they sent Michael back to her or to him. And then Abner went and talked to David took just a handful of men with him and made a covenant. But he said, you know, David, this is really a good thing, but I need for the rest of the heads of Israel to come in and do the same. I need to go and bring them to you. And David said, go in peace. Well, Joab and his brother, when they heard that he was there and made this covenant and that David sent him away in peace, they were upset. He killed their brother. They've got revenge to get. So they laid a trap and they killed Abner. The people thought David set this up. But David showed them that this is not true. He was just as upset, just as sorrowful, and did just the same things, if not more so, than what he did with Saul. And the people realized, David didn't do this. David wasn't deceitful. These guys did it on their own. He became more esteemed in the people's eyes. He's not a rat. He doesn't set people up just to get rid of them, to say he can become more powerful. Well, Ishbetheth, he became very afraid when he heard that Saul or uh, Abner was killed. Oh my gosh, who else have I got? Well, he's got these two other generals in his army. And now they are also, they fell under Abner. Well, they're not thrilled with this situation. So they went into his chamber when he was taking a nap and they killed him. And they cut his head off. And they traveled all night to take it to David. So they could say, David, look at what we've got for you. Now you can become king over everybody. They thought they were bringing David good news. Oops. Because we find out that David rewarded them the same way he did the Amalekite that said he killed Saul. Why? Why did David treat them the same? Because David is a man of his word. He made a covenant with Jonathan not to kill off his household when he became king. 2 Samuel 4, verses 9 through 11. And he tells them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when the wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Well, this is really a good thing because David is living up to what he promised Jonathan. It kind of reminds me of Forrest Gump with Bubba. Bubba went, I'm going I'm to share everything with your family. Even when Bubba was dead and everybody said, why are you doing this? This is crazy. He was a man of his word. With the idea that all of Israel could now be united, David said to his men, you know what? I don't want to live in Hebron anymore. Let's go and get Jerusalem. And so they did. It was there that he had the opportunity to become king over all of Israel. And from that point on, Jerusalem is considered the city of David. 2 Samuel 
And David realized that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. When the Philistines heard, oh, they made this guy king? They got upset and they went and tried to attack him a couple of different times. But David's learned his lesson over the time. And he went to God for guidance on what to do. And God told him exactly what to do. Should I confront them? Yes, go straight at them the first time. And he defeated them. The second time they came, he said, should I go? And God said, no, go around behind them. And when you hear the trumpet, you come forward because they're going to be facing me and they'll have nowhere to run. So he was successful at defeating the Philistines the first time around. And this is where we're going to pick up with the main subject of today. Because see, David wants to go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and bring it back to Israel. The Ark symbolized the Lord's presence among his people. It was the opportunity for the people to know. Because remember, when they had the Ark, God was with them. When they marched, when they were in battle, all of this stuff, God was right there with them. Under the judges, the Ark served as the focal point of their country. God was the center. It's from the seat that God gave out the wisdom and power to his people. But did you realize that the ark was virtually ignored by Saul? Because remember, when the Philistines captured it after that battle, they took it to their temples. When they sent it back, it didn't get very far before the Israelites took it and said, yay, Saul didn't bring it back to the, to the tabernacle. He dumped it off at this guy's house. And Saul never made a serious effort to bring this item back to Israel, back to the central focus for everybody. Well, David's about to remedy this situation. 2 Samuel 6, verse 1 and 2. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him to uh, Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. David gathered his best soldiers, so many of them, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Because it's an important step towards providing the central worship to bring God back where he belongs not sitting out somewhere else where only a few get to worship and the others don't. The central focus. This ark was the covenant which God told Moses and commanded him 400 years plus years before David even was born. He made it. The ark of God represented the immediate presence and the glory of God in Israel. And David considered it a high priority to bring the ark out of obscurity and back into prominence. Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have re revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They didn't have all that great opportunity to go visit at the, the guy's house and worship God. David wanted Israel to be alive with the sense of, uh, with the sense of near presence of God amongst them. He wanted them to be able to worship the way that they were supposed to originally. The last mention of the Ark of God was when it came back from the land of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7. And it was 
put to bed or rest, whatever you want to prefer, at the house of Abinadab for some 20 years. Saul tried to call for it once when he was going to, uh, to battle with the Philistines when Jonathan was attacking the garrison. He started to call for it till the battle started raging. He says, never mind, don't bring it. And he went to do what he had to do. David had a great motive to bring the ark back, though, when you think about it. Think about all the blessings that God has given him. And he wants the people to know God did this. He wants the presence and glory of God in Israel so that they can worship. 2 Samuel 6, verses 3 through 5. They placed the ark on a new cart that they might bring it into the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. Transporting the ark on a cart was against God's original command. He had a very specific command. The ark was designated to be carried according to Exodus 25, verses 12 through 15. You shall cast four golden rings for it and fasten them to all four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. It was also to be carried by a specific group of Levites, the, the tribe of Kohath under the Levites. No one else. Now, the house of Abinadab, they were of the Kohath group. But Numbers 4.15 said that when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. It is interesting when you think about it, how did they get this thing on that new cart? They had to have picked it up and put it on it. <laughs> Obviously, they didn't have little winch systems and ropes and pulleys like, like we might do today. They had to have picked it up and put it on that, on that new cart in order to parade it down the road to Jerusalem. To put that ark on a cart was another example of man doing what man wants to when it comes to worshiping God. When the Philistines transported that ark back to them after they were so wonderfully blessed with the uh, plagues of hemorrhoids and mice, God didn't hold that against them. They didn't know any better. He expected his people to, though. He expected them to live by the word of God. They should have known better than to put that thing on a cart. They should have known they're supposed to carry it. Well, Abinadab, he had these two sons, Uzzah and Ahio, and they were the ones in charge of leading the cart. That's interesting because Uzzah means strength and Ohio means friendly. Let's transport that or let's bring that into today's time for just a moment. Think about what we just heard. 
Much service for the Lord, much service to the Lord today is like this. A new cart, a big production with uh, uh, strength leading and friendly out front. Trying to bring in God, God's presence. Does it work that way? I don't think so. They did all of this without inquiring of God. They want so badly to bring God where they want God to be. They didn't even bother to see if this is what he wanted. They didn't look for his will. I'm sure that David prayed to God, God, we're going to bring you here. We want to celebrate you. We want to have you here at this place with us. And this was a good thing, but it was done the wrong way. Judging from the importance of the occasion and all the instruments mentioned, this was really a huge production. 30,000 guys. They were all probably marching and singing and clapping and yelling, Yay, God! The music's going. It's just having a good time. It's an exciting time. Aren't we often tempted to worship God like that? Isn't it amazing that, wor- that the worship experience is how we feel? I feel good. This was a good worship service today. It was awesome. We sang and we praised and we had just this grand time. But when we realize that worship is not about us, it's about God, doesn't that sort of change things just a little bit? We need to go to God's Word to see how He wants to be worshipped. We just don't get to make that call. That's been a trouble throughout the from the very beginning. When you think back to... Uh, in Genesis, with the two brothers, Cain and Abel. One wanted to worship God the way he wanted, the other one didn't. Worship isn't about what pleases us, it's all about what pleases God. Second Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nahan, Uzar reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burst, burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Uzzah did the one thing that was strictly forbidden. He touched the ark. Remember, that's what it said in, in Numbers 4.15. They're to be covered so that the, the, Kohath, men of, the tribe of Kohath don't touch the ark and die. I'm not sure if the ark was even covered when they put it on this card. If it was not, this is a doubly thing down that was a bad thing. So not only did he just possibly not touch just the coverings, but he physically laid hands on the physical ark. Well, Uzzah made a decision in a moment to disregard God's command and to do what seemed right to him. Even decisions made in a moment matter before God. And God fulfilled that ominous threat and he killed Uzzah for touching David wanted Israel to know the power and the glory of God. He wanted to get them out into Israel so they were like, yay, we still know who God is. And when God showed up at Nakan's threshing floor, but he didn't show up the way they wanted. Hebrews 10, 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled under the foot of the Son of God and who is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has insulted the spirit of grace. Uzzah's error was more than just a reflex action. 
or an instinct. God struck Uzzah because his action was based upon a critical error in his thinking. What was that error? Well, Uzzah erred in thinking it didn't matter how or who transported the ark. It did. God said, this is how it's going to be done. Well, it didn't matter to him. Uzzah erred in thinking that it didn't matter if he touched it because it had been in his dad's house for so long he thought he knew everything about the ark. He erred in thinking the ground of Nehan's threshing floor was less holy than his hand and to thinking that God could not take care of the ark on his own. He needed to lose his help. He needs my help to do it. 2 Samuel 6, verses 8 and 9. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David's anger was based in confusion. He couldn't understand why his good intentions weren't good enough for God. God cares about both our intentions and our actions. How the ark uh, of the Lord, how can it come to me? If every time I try and move it, somebody gets killed. David knew it was important to bring the ark of the Lord into the center of Israel's life. He knew that was important. And he wanted all of Israel to be excited about it. He wanted them to be excited about the presence of God. But because of what happened to Uzzah, David felt he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. Jeremiah 25, 6. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. David's response in the rest of the chapter shows that he finally found the right answer to the question he had. He answered the question with the thought later expressed in Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. David got the answer. It's in the word of God. While he was figuring out how God wanted things to be done, he said, you know what? I need for this ark to stay here at the house of Obed-Edom. Now, he is also of the family of Kohath. So this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And David went off to try and figure out how can I get this thing to Jerusalem where I want it to be. Well, they found out that the house of Obed-Edom was being blessed. And that really got him kind of excited again. When God's word was obeyed and his holiness was respected, blessings followed. God wants the ark to be a blessing for Israel, not a curse. We might say the curse didn't come from God's heart, but from man's disobedience. 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 15. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and the house, all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and a sound of trumpet. David was glad to know the presence and glory of God could be a, bring a blessing instead of a curse. He was thrilled. He was also glad to see that when they obeyed God, they were blessed. Isn't that the same way with us? When we are obeying and listening to God, that we're blessed? 
And when we don't, well, that blessing just seems like it's not there. According to 1 Chronicles 15, 11 through 15, David specifically told them what to do. Then David called on Zadok and Abiathar the priest and for all the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amadinadab, Amenadab, and he said to them, you are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to place it to the place that I prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time or carry it at the first, the Lord, our God, made an outburst among us. For we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles. As Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Again, when we worship God, we often think that a new card or strength or a friendly manner is a way to bring the presence of God and the glory of God into the house. But God always wants his presence and glory to come on the shoulders of the consecrated, the obedient, praising men and women. That's what God wants. That's how God wants to bring his glory in for everybody to see and have fun with. David was wise enough to know that the problem with the first temple wasn't that it was this great big production, that it wasn't big enough. Oh, it was big enough. But it was done according to man's way and not God's. Psalm 149, verses 3 and 4. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and with lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. David didn't hold anything back on this trip, this little last leg or portion with the ark. He held nothing back in his own expression of worship. He didn't dance out of obligation, but out of heartfelt worship. He was glad to bring the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem according to God's word. And from what we know from the ancient times and from what we have in current times, this was not a solo dance. This was not David out leading a procession doing, you know, twirls and spins and pirouettes and all this other stuff. No, this was David with a bunch of men, almost like it is with the ascetic Jews, the Orthodox Jews when the men dance today. How do they dance? They stand with arm in arm and they do whatever it is they do. We see it today and this is how we think that it, that it actually went. What scholars think. A lot of people think that, that David was naked or wearing his underwear. But we know this is not true. He was in an ephod. And in this context, it means that by putting on that regular old linen ephod, he took and put aside his royal robes and dressed just like everybody else. He was one of the good old boys. And he was having fun. 2 Samuel 6, verses 16 through 19. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in the place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. 
Then all the people departed each to his house. This was a great celebration. But you know, David's wife, Michael, didn't appreciate David's exuberant worship. She felt it was not dignified for a king of Israel to express his emotions before God. We'll deal with that uh, uh, more about that in just a moment. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle. See, he set up a place for it. He brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, set it up, and that's where the ark was put. After many years since the ark was lost in battle, it has not been in the tabernacle. And now it's returned to its rightful place in the Holy of Holies. The burnt offering spoke of consecration. The peace spoke of fellowship. That was a great consecration and fellowship with God that day. And just for you, Bill, it was also a great day of barbecue. They enjoyed that. It was a good time. 2 Samuel 6.20 But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, and one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. With biting sarcasm, with biting sarcasm, Michael's criticism could have just ruined his whole day. But it doesn't. It was bad enough that she despised him in, his, in her heart, but every one of the scholars that I've ever read about and read of their thoughts think that she did this publicly. She chastised him in front of others. Michael seemed to indicate that she didn't really object to his, uh, his dancing, but to what he wore when he danced and did the proceedings. He took off his royal robes and became just one of the regular old people. David acted as if he were just another regular old worshiper of God. Can you imagine? In her eyes, this was so unbecoming because he took off his robes. This was no way for a great soldier, a statesman, and a king to act. You just don't. Can you imagine today if you looked out and we were having a worldwide deal, let's say in England? And there again, this, this great celebration of uh, worshiping God. And all of a sudden, you've seen Queen Elizabeth. She's got on her regular street duds, not the royal robes, not the fancy stuff. And she's out there and she's dancing with everybody and singing praises to God. Can you see that? Can you vision that in your head? I can't. I really can't. Not because she's so old, but because that would just be so out of, out of character for her. It would have been bad enough for him to encourage, it, it, it would have been bad enough to do that, but all he had to do was encourage others to do it. Don't be like them. Be king. That's what you're supposed to be. And it really just goes to show you one thing. She has never experienced the blessings of God. Not once. Her father set such a poor example that it sucked all the joy out of her. She doesn't know who God really is and how great he is and how much he deserves to be worshipped. 2 Samuel 6, verses 21 and 22. So David said to Michael, 
it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will humble and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. David did not let Michael's sarcasm ruin his day. He simply explained the truth. I did it for God, not for you. He knew his dancing wasn't inappropriate to the setting or the context. He didn't claim that he was appointed king over his people. I was appointed king over God's people. He also didn't dance to show others just how spiritual he was. He humbled himself before God, setting the example for all. Well, if she thought this was embarrassing, guess what? You ain't seen nothing yet. I will become even more indignified than this. And you know what, Michael? I don't feel embarrassed one bit for how I acted before God. And you know what? The people didn't think nothing bad about me. Matter of fact, they respect me more for it. When it comes to the throne of judgment and the field of battle, no one will do more to support the splendor and authority of the king than David will. But you know what? It comes the same with his devotion to God, with his worship to God. No one, no one will humble themselves more than David will. He strips himself of all his pride. Think about that one. How much do we allow our pride to get in the way of worshiping God? Well, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to be embarrassed. What if people watch me? What will they say? What will they think? David understood the key concept of worship, and that is this. In true biblical worship, there is an audience of one. Who's that one? God. He doesn't care what you guys think of him while he's doing his worshiping. It's not for you. It's for God. One is worshiping God alone. Undignified worship is not concerned about receiving the approval of people, but rather worshiping the one and only God and how he wants to be worshiped. Only God is worthy of worship. It was a handful of years ago, I'm a handful, okay, uh, probably 30, 25, 30 years ago is my guess, that this song came out by this group, and it was called Undignified. I didn't see this one in concert, but I can tell you, I went to another concert with a, as a, a chaperone for a youth group, and it was so amazing to watch how the young people just worship God. It was exciting. And I don't know if you even know the song, but this is how. This is how exciting worship should be. I'll dance, I'll sing to be mad on 
Undignified worship is not unbiblical worship. It is worshiping God based on the word of God. Worship's parameters are set in the Bible. And I'll tell you, I really wish that more people would feel the freedom to worship God with everything put aside, not worrying about what anyone else thinks, how anyone else views them, how anything else in the world matters, because it's between you and God. That's so important when you think about it. What does it tell us in Psalm 100? Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Eve, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. When we come and we praise God, we need to remember it's supposed to be an exciting time. It's supposed to help you get uplifted in your heart. It's supposed to show God you have nothing between you and Him. You can set aside your pride. You don't care what anybody thinks because it's for God that you're doing it. Let us always use David's example. 
Let us always be undignified when we worship God, the creator of all things, the one who deserves all our praise and all our glory. Amen. Isaiah 29, verse 13. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. David has the crown in his hands, and one would think that Israel would be just totally thrilled to finally have him as king. Judah has said, yes, we want you as our king. But where Israel was concerned, it was not a peaceful transition of power. 2 Samuel 2, verses 8 through 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, son Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This really was not Abner's place to be able to do this. But, you know, I think I can understand why he so disregarded letting David become king over everybody. We need to remember what David said to Abner when David and that, that guy that was with him went into Saul's camp when he was sleeping and they took that water jug and they took the spear and then they retreated across the valley and called out. You remember what was said in 1 Samuel 26, verses 15 and 16? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was in his head? Abner was afraid of David. He was afraid of David, especially since Abner is alive and King Saul's not. He may have had a guilty conscience right here and he may have figured that David's threat or warning was still applicable. Abner is a strong general, and he's got a lot of pull and still a lot of love, and he's respected by everybody. He had a good life under Saul. He was the head of all the army. He was like, he was like Alexander the Great for Saul. So when Saul now dead, why not take one of Saul's sons and make him king over Israel and still serve him, possibly setting up a puppet government to where he can manipulate the king. I don't know. It's possible. But we do know that it was not long before a civil war broke out between Judah and Israel. And it was really interesting when, we, when you look at it because Abner's in charge of Israel's army. And he went and met with Joab and his two brothers who were in charge of Judah's army under King David. And they met together. And they had a contest of sorts, a crazy contest. And they may have had this deal that was in there that said, if we win this contest, we will surrender to you and vice versa. I'm not sure. 
It's possible. But the contest went like this. I'm going to send some of my men up to fight. You send some of yours as equal to the same number to fight. And the winner, we'll just see what happens. Well, they did that. And the first thing that the first groups did was, well, they grabbed each other by their hair, pulled them back and stabbed each other to the side, and they all died. And it didn't say that they quit there. It seemed like this kept going on for a while. But we find out, according to 2 Samuel 2.17, that day the battle was very severe. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So therefore, Joab and his group started winning. And this really had to make uh, Abner start to really think. And I'm pretty sure that after this heavy price, he and what he had left took off running. Typical behavior. If you're getting, if you're getting your bucket kicked, you run away. Joab and David's men chased him, him and his two brothers. But he had a brother that was really fast. Says he ran like a deer. And he was chasing Abner down. And Abner turned around and said, whoa, stop right there. Asahel, quit chasing me because if you don't, you're going to die. Asahel didn't stop. He continued. And so what did Abner do? He took the butt of his spear and thrust it through his gut. Not the point. The dull butt thrust it through his gut and he died. <laughs> Joab and the other brother and the rest of the army continued to chase him. They saw the brother dead. And Abner and his group of men got on top of a hill and they formed a tight circle. They were in a position of great defense. I mean, you don't want to have to fight going uphill. You're going to lose 90% of the time, especially when you have the lower ground. Abner called out to him and said, hey, why don't you stop and why don't you just go away, go beyond your own way, because why should these men have to fight each other as brothers and die? Remember, they're all Israelites. No matter what you do, they're all under the kingdom of God. Why should the brothers fight and die? Well, in the end, 2 Samuel 2, verses 30 and 31 tells us, Then Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men died. That's saying an awful lot right there alone. Overall, this turned out to be a really lengthy civil war. Over the period of time, everybody could see that David and his men were getting stronger. Asabah and his men were getting weaker. Everybody except one man, and that was Abner. And because of this strength, it was really frightening to the guy he appointed king. And what he ended up doing was accusing Abner of sleeping with one of King Saul's concubines. Well, you can just imagine this did not set well with him. He was very upset. And Abner told him just how nice he had been to him. 2 Samuel 3, verses 8 through 10. Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? May God do so to Abner and more also if as, if as the Lord has sworn to David. 
I do not accomplish this for him to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. Abner did just that. He sent messengers to David and said, David, I want to do a deal with you. I want to make a covenant. I'm going to bring all the heads of Israel to you to make a covenant to where you're king over everybody. And David said, "Ah, sounds like a plan to me. One condition. I want my original wife, Michael, back. She was mine. I want her. Well, Abner said, okay, I can do that. So they sent Michael back to her or to him. And then Abner went and talked to David. Took just a handful of men with him and made a covenant. But he said, you know, David, this is really a good thing, but I need for the rest of the heads of Israel to come in and do the same. I need to go in and bring them to you. And David said, go in peace. Well, Joab and his brother, when they heard that he was there and made this covenant and that David sent him away in peace, they were upset. He killed their brother. They've got revenge to get. So they laid a trap and they killed Abner. The people thought David set this up. But David showed them that this is not true. He was just as upset, just as sorrowful, and did just the same things, if not more so, than what he did with Saul. And the people realized, David didn't do this. David wasn't deceitful. These guys did it on their own. He became more esteemed in the people's eyes. He's not a rat. He doesn't set people up just to get rid of them, to say he can become more powerful. Well, Ishbetheth, he became very afraid when he heard that Saul or uh, Abner was killed. Oh my gosh, who else have I got? Well, he's got these two other generals in his army. And now they are also, they fell under Abner. Well, they're not thrilled with this situation. So they went into his chamber when he was taking a nap and they killed him. And they cut his head off. And they traveled all night to take it to David. So they could say, David, look at what we've got for you. Now you can become king over everybody. They thought they were bringing David good news. Oops. Because we find out that David rewarded them the same way he did the Amalekite that said he killed Saul. Why? Why did David treat them the same? Because David is a man of his word. He made a covenant with Jonathan not to kill off his household when he became king. 2 Samuel 4, verses 9 through 11. And he tells them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when the wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Well, this is really a good thing because David is living up to what he promised Jonathan. It kind of reminds me of Forrest Gump with Bubba. Bubba went, I'm gonna gonna share everything with your family. Even when Bubba was dead and everybody said, why are you doing this? This is crazy. He was a man of his word. With the idea that all of Israel could now be united, David said to his men, you know what? I don't want to live in Hebron anymore. Let's go and get Jerusalem. 
And so they did. It was there that he had the opportunity to become king over all of Israel. And from that point on, Jerusalem is considered the city of David. 2 Samuel 5, 12. And David realized that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. When the Philistines heard, oh, they made this guy king? They got upset and they went and tried to attack him a couple of different times. But David's learned his lesson over the time. And he went to God for guidance on what to do. And God told him exactly what to do. Should I confront them? Yes, go straight at them the first time. And he defeated them. The second time they came, he said, should I go? And God said, no, go around behind them. And when you hear the trumpet, you come forward because they're going to be facing me and they'll have nowhere to run. So he was successful at defeating the Philistines the first time around. And this is where we're going to pick up with the main subject of today. Because see, David wants to go get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and bring it back to Israel. The Ark symbolized the Lord's presence among his people. It was the opportunity for the people to know. Because remember, when they had the Ark, God was with them. When they marched, when they were in battle, all of this stuff, God was right there with them. Under the judges, the Ark served as the focal point of their country. God was the center. It's from the seat that God gave out the wisdom and power to his people. But did you realize that the ark was virtually ignored by Saul? Because remember, when the Philistines captured it after that battle, they took it to their temples. When they sent it back, it didn't get very far before the Israelites took it and said, yay, Saul didn't bring it back to the, to the tabernacle. He dumped it off at this guy's house. And Saul never made a serious effort to bring this item back to Israel, back to the central focus for everybody. Well, David's about to remedy this situation. 2 Samuel 6, verse 1 and 2. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him to uh, Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. David gathered his best soldiers, so many of them, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Because it's an important step towards providing the central worship to bring God back where he belongs not sitting out somewhere else where only a few get to worship and the others don't. The central focus. This ark was the covenant which God told Moses and commanded him 400 years plus years before David even was born. He made it. The ark of God represented the immediate presence and the glory of God in Israel. And David considered it a high priority to bring the ark out of obscurity and back into prominence. Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have re revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They didn't have all that great opportunity to go visit at the, the guy's house and worship God. 
David wanted Israel to be alive with the sense of, uh, with the sense of near presence of God amongst them. He wanted them to be able to worship the way that they were supposed to originally. The last mention of the Ark of God was when it came back from the land of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7. And it was put to bed or rest, whatever you want to prefer, at the house of Abinadab for some 20 years. Saul tried to call for it once when he was going to uh, to battle with the Philistines when Jonathan was attacking the garrison. He started to call for it until the battle started raging. He says, never mind, don't bring it. And he went to do what he had to do. David had a great motive to bring the ark back, though, when you think about it. Think about all the blessings that God has given him. And he wants the people to know God did this. He wants the presence and glory of God in Israel so that they can worship. 2 Samuel 6, verses 3 through 5. They placed the ark on a new cart that they might bring it into the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. Transporting the ark on a cart was against God's original command. He had a very specific command. The ark was designated to be carried according to Exodus 25, verses 12 through 15. You shall cast four golden rings for it and fasten them to all four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. It was also to be carried by a specific group of Levites, the the tribe of Kohath under the Levites. No one else. Now, the house of Abinadab, they were of the Kohath group. But Numbers 4.15 said that when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. It is interesting when you think about it, how did they get this thing on that new cart? They had to have picked it up and put it on. (coughs) Obviously, they didn't have little winch systems and ropes and pulleys like like we might do today. They had to have picked it up and put it on that, on that new cart in order to parade it down the road to Jerusalem. To put that ark on a cart was another example of man doing what man wants to when it comes to worshiping God. When the Philistines transported that ark back to them after they were so wonderfully blessed with the uh, plagues of hemorrhoids and mice, God didn't hold that against them. They didn't know any better. He expected his people to, though. He expected them to live by the word of God. They should have known better than to put that thing on a cart. They should have known they're supposed to carry it. Well, Abinadab, he had these two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. 
And they were the ones in charge of leading the cart. That's interesting because Uzzah means strength and Ahio means friendly. Let's transport that or let's bring that into today's time for just a moment. Think about what we just heard. Much service for the Lord, much service to the Lord today is like this. A new cart, a big production with uh, uh, strength leading and friendly out front, trying to bring in God, God's presence. Does it work that way? I don't think so. They did all of this without inquiring of God. They want so badly to bring God where they want God to be. They didn't even bother to see if this is what he wanted. They didn't look for his will. I'm sure that David prayed to God, God, we're going to bring you here. We want to celebrate you. We want to have you here at this place with us. And this was a good thing, but it was done the wrong way. Judging from the importance of the occasion and all the instruments mentioned, this was really a huge production. 30,000 guys. They were all probably marching and singing and clapping and yelling. Yay, God! The music's going. It's just having a good time. It's an exciting time. Aren't we often tempted to worship God like that? Isn't it amazing that, wor that the worship experience is how we feel? I feel good. This was a good worship service today. It was awesome. We sang and we praised and we had just this grand time. But when we realize that worship is not about us, it's about God, doesn't that sort of change things just a little bit? We need to go to God's Word to see how He wants to be worshipped. We just don't get to make that call. That's been a trouble throughout the from the very beginning. When you think back to uh, in Genesis with the two brothers, Cain and Abel. One wanted to worship God the way he wanted, the other one didn't. Worship isn't about what pleases us, it's all about what pleases God. 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nahan, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Uzzah did the one thing that was strictly forbidden. He touched the ark. Remember, that's what it said in, in Numbers 4.15. They're to be covered so that the, the, Kohath, men of, the tribe of Kohath don't touch the ark and die. I'm not sure if the ark was even covered when they put it on this card. If it was not, this is a doubly thing down that was a bad thing. So not only did he just possibly not touch just the coverings, but he physically laid hands on the physical ark. Well, Uzzah made a decision in a moment to disregard God's command and to do what seemed right to him. Even decisions made in a moment matter before God. And God fulfilled that ominous threat and he killed Uzzah for touching David wanted Israel to know the power and the glory of God. He wanted to get them out into Israel so they were like, yay, we still know who God is. And when God showed up at Nakan's threshing floor, but he didn't show up the way they wanted. 
Hebrews 10, 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot of the Son of God and who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Uzzah's error was more than just a reflex action or an instinct. God struck Uzzah because his action was based upon a critical error in his thinking. What was that error? Well, Uzzah erred in thinking it didn't matter how or who transported the ark. It did. God said, this is how it's going to be done. Well, it didn't matter to him. Uzzah erred in thinking that it didn't matter if he touched it because it had been in his dad's house for so long he thought he knew everything about the ark. He erred in thinking the ground of Nehan's threshing floor was less holy than his hand and to thinking that God could not take care of the ark on his own. He needed to lose his help. He needs my help to do it. 2 Samuel 6, verses 8 and 9. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David's anger was based in confusion. He couldn't understand why his good intentions weren't good enough for God. God cares about both our intentions and our actions. How the ark uh, of the Lord, how can it come to me? If every time I try and move it, somebody gets killed. David knew it was important to bring the ark of the Lord into the center of Israel's life. He knew that was important. And he wanted all of Israel to be excited about it. He wanted them to be excited about the presence of God. But because of what happened to Uzzah, David felt he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. Jeremiah 25, 6. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. David's response in the rest of the chapter shows that he finally found the right answer to the question he had. He answered the question with the thought later expressed in Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. David got the answer. It's in the word of God. While he was figuring out how God wanted things to be done, he said, you know what? I need for this ark to stay here at the house of Obed-Edom. Now, he is also of the family of Kohath. So this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And David went off to try and figure out how can I get this thing to Jerusalem where I want it to be. Well, they found out that the house of Obed-Edom was being blessed. And that really got him kind of excited again. When God's word was obeyed and his holiness was respected, blessings followed. God wants the ark to be a blessing for Israel, not a curse. We might say the curse didn't come from God's heart, but from man's disobedience. 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 15. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and the house 
All the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and a sound of trumpet. David was glad to know the presence and glory of God could be a, bring a blessing instead of a curse. He was thrilled. He was also glad to see that when they obeyed God, they were blessed. Isn't that the same way with us? When we are obeying and listening to God, that we're blessed? And when we don't, well, that blessing just seems like it's not there. According to 1 Chronicles 15, 11 through 15, David specifically told them what to do. Then David called on Zadok and Abiathar the priest and for all the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amadinadab, Amenadab, and he said to them, you are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to place it to the place that I prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time or carry it at the first. The Lord, our God, made an outburst among us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Again, when we worship God, we often think that a new card or strength or a friendly manner is a way to bring the presence of God and the glory of God into the house. But God always wants his presence and glory to come on the shoulders of the consecrated, the obedient, praising men and women. That's what God wants. That's how God wants to bring his glory in for everybody to see and have fun with. David was wise enough to know that the problem with the first temp wasn't that it was a, this great big production, that it wasn't big enough. Oh, it was big enough. But it was done according to man's way and not God's. Psalm 149, verses 3 and 4. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them praise, sing praises to him with timbrel and with lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. <laughs> David didn't hold anything back on this trip, this little last leg or portion with the ark. He held nothing back in his own expression of worship. He didn't dance out of obligation, but out of heartfelt worship. He was glad to bring the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem according to God's word. And from what we know from the ancient times and from what we have in current times, this was not a solo dance. This was not David out leading a procession doing, you know, twirls and spins and pirouettes and all this other stuff. No, this was David with a bunch of men, almost like it is with the ascetic Jews, the Orthodox Jews when the men dance today. How do they dance? They stand with arm in arm and they do whatever it is they do. We see it today and this is how we think that it, that it actually went. What scholars think. A lot of people think that, that David was naked or wearing his underwear. But we know this is not true. He was in an ephod. And in this context, it means that by putting on that regular old linen ephod, he took and put aside his royal robes and dressed just like everybody else. He was one of the good old boys. And he was having fun. 2 Samuel 6, verses 16 through 19. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. 
So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in the place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to the, all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. This was a great celebration. But you know, David's wife, Michael, didn't appreciate David's exuberant worship. She felt it was not dignified for a king of Israel to express his emotions before God. We'll deal with that uh, uh, more about that in just a moment. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle. See, he set up a place for it. He brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, set it up, and that's where the ark was put. After many years since the ark was lost in battle, it has not been in the tabernacle. And now it's returned to its rightful place in the Holy of Holies. The burnt offering spoke of consecration. The peace spoke of fellowship. That was a great consecration and fellowship with God that day. And just for you, Bill, it was also a great day of barbecue. They enjoyed that. It was a good time. 2 Samuel 6.20 but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, and one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. With biting sarcasm, with biting sarcasm, Michael's criticism could have just ruined his whole day. But it doesn't. It was bad enough that she despised him in, his, in her heart, but every one of the scholars that I've ever read about and read of their thoughts think that she did this publicly. She chastised him in front of others. Michael seemed to indicate that she didn't really object to his, uh, his dancing, but to what he wore when he danced and did the proceedings. He took off his royal robes and became just one of the regular old people. David acted as if he were just another regular old worshiper of God. Can you imagine? In her eyes, this was so unbecoming because he took off his robes this was no way for a great soldier, a statesman, and a king to act. You just don't. Can you imagine today if you looked out and we were having a worldwide deal, let's say in England, and there again this had this great celebration of uh, worshiping God, and all of a sudden you've seen Queen Elizabeth. She's got on her regular street duds, not the royal robes, not the fancy stuff, and she's out there and she's dancing with everybody and singing praises to God. Can you see that? Can you vision that in your head? I can't. I really can't. Not because she's so old, but because that would just be so out of, out of character for her. It would have been bad enough for him to encourage, it, it, it would have been bad enough to do that, but all he had to do was encourage others to do it. Don't be like them. Be king. That's what you're supposed to be. And it really just goes to show you one thing. 
she has never experienced the blessings of God. Not once. Her father set such a poor example that it sucked all the joy out of her. She doesn't know who God really is and how great he is and how much he deserves to be worshipped. 2 Samuel 6, verses 21 and 22. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will, humble, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children, to the day of her death. David did not let Michael's sarcasm ruin his day. He simply explained the truth. I did it for God, not for you. He knew his dancing wasn't inappropriate to the setting or the context. He didn't claim that he was appointed king over his people. I was appointed king over God's people. He also didn't dance to show others just how spiritual he was. He humbled himself before God, setting the example for all. Well, if she thought this was embarrassing, guess what? You ain't seen nothing yet. I will become even more indignified than this. And you know what, Michael? I don't feel embarrassed one bit for how I acted before God. And you know what? The people didn't think nothing bad about me. Matter of fact, they respect me more for it. When it comes to the throne of judgment and the field of battle, no one will do more to support the splendor and authority of the king than David will. But you know what? It comes the same with his devotion to God, with his worship to God. No one, no one will humble themselves more than David will. He strips himself of all his pride. Think about that one. How much do we allow our pride to get in the way of worshiping God? Well, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to be embarrassed. What if people watch me? What will they say? What will they think? David understood the key concept of worship, and that is this. In true biblical worship, there is an audience of one. Who's that one? God. He doesn't care what you guys think of him while he's doing his worshiping. It's not for you. It's for God. One is worshiping God alone. Undignified worship is not concerned about receiving the approval of people, but rather worshiping the one and only God and how he wants to be worshiped. Only God is worthy of worship. It was a handful of years ago, I'm a handful, okay, uh, probably 30, 25, 30 years ago is my guess, that this song came out by this group, and it was called Undignified. I didn't see this one in concert, but I can tell you, I went to another concert with a, as a, a chaperone for a youth group, and it was so amazing to watch how the young people just worship God. It was exciting. And I don't know if you even know the song, but this is how. This is how exciting worship should be. I will dance, I will sing to be there. 
Undignified worship is not unbiblical worship. It is worshiping God based on the word of God. Worship's parameters are set in the Bible. And I'll tell you, I really wish that more people would feel the freedom to worship God with everything put aside, not worrying about what anyone else thinks, how anyone else views them, how anything else in the world matters, because it's between you and God. That's so important when you think about it. What does it tell us in Psalm 100? Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Eve, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. 
when we come and we praise God, we need to remember, it's supposed to be an exciting time. It's supposed to help you get uplifted in your heart. It's supposed to show God you have nothing between you and Him. You can set aside your pride. You don't care what anybody thinks because it's for God that you're doing it. Let us always use David's example. Let us always be undignified when we worship God, the Creator of all things, the One who deserves all our praise and all our glory. Amen.